Good morning, everybody. Is everybody doing well? We're doing well. This morning, um, I don't know if you caught it, but I caught it. You know, sometimes there are Freudian slips that come out of our mouth, and we don't even know that we're saying it. But uh, I noticed that when Tom was talking about the children's conference, he made a statement at the beginning. He said, children. Did anybody else catch that? That is a, a man that has many children and that sometimes we fall into temptation when our children are misbehaving, right? And, and so I just thought, even though that may have been a Freudian slip when he said children instead of children, I think it is now a new English word that has been coined. And so now if my kids misbehave, I'm going to look at them and say, you better be careful. You're going to be a children. Um, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to kind of refocus, uh, and as I've been coming once a month, and we skipped last month because I did a little bit of a mini vacation with my family before we dispersed getting ready for the fall, and as Tom said, I have two that are uh, getting ready to go to college. One I dropped off this last Tuesday uh, for football camp, and then Josiah gets to study abroad uh, for a semester in Ecuador and he leaves on Monday. And uh, so I'm excited for him, and I think he's excited for himself. And so I wasn't here last uh, month, and then the month before that, I kind of shifted a focus, and I talked about a message that I called The Right Stuff, where we just talked about us being students of the miraculous. And we shared uh, out of the book of Judges about Gideon. But prior to that, now I'm really stirring up everybody's uh, memories. Prior to that, I had launched kind of a theme that I wanted to go throughout the summer with you guys. Uh, and now summer has passed. We're going in the fall. But the times that I'm going to be here, I want to kind of continue to build line upon line, precept on precept, a message that I've entitled, Capturing the Church's Lost Identity. And just by way of a quick review, um, and you say that's an impossible task for you, well, it's quick in my mind, it may not be in yours, but that's okay. Uh, we started, first of all, to look at a text in Ephesians 5, where Paul was teaching on very practical uh, uh, roles concerning how husbands and wives relate together, how they complement each other. But Paul finishes that teaching uh, by driving home a greater truth. And he said, you know, husbands and wives and their marriage relationship, how they relate and respond to each other, it, they're really in a prophetic act. Their marriage is a prophetic act. They live out a, a prophecy because they reflect a greater glory. There is a glory in marriage, but there is a greater glory which they're revealing. They're and that is the relationship of Christ and his church. And so when you begin to look at what Jesus, how Jesus ministers to his church, he said that he would nourish her, he would wash her, he would refresh her with the power of his word, with the refreshing power of his word. And it said that he would present 
her to himself as a radiant church. And what we focused in on in that teaching is we said that there are three things that it said that the power of his word, the refreshing, washing, cleansing power of his word, what it does is it removes every spot, every wrinkle, and every blemish. And the point that I made there is one, only one of those terms refers to external contamination. In other words, that somehow as she lives in a fallen world, that somehow just by us living in a corrupt world, that sometimes we pick up road dust and there, there is a smudge or a filth that comes upon us and we need to go and we need to be bathed, we need to be renewed, we need to be washed again by the word. But I said that the other two terms that are found there where it talks about wrinkle and blemish and, and using just our English vernacular, the word blemish there could be literally interpreted age spot. And so I said the last two words in that uh, verse there, wrinkle and age spot or wrinkle and blemish, refers to not something external, but talking about her appearance in age. And so what the Word of God is teaching us in that passage is that Jesus comes to his church and he is preparing his bride to present her as a radiant church, as a radiant bride that is forever young. Her youth, her strength, her vitality is renewed day by day as we sit there and we soak and immerse ourselves and allow his preceding word and declarations to come over us. And so my point that I made was I said that what this passage of Scripture is declaring to us is that Jesus is going to return for a church like the one that he left. And his church, the church in Acts, was a church that was a youthful church and there was a fertility about her. There was a, a youthfulness about her where she was going to follow the Lamb. She was, you know, a spouse to the Lord, and she was uh, in pursuit of her bridegroom king. And out of that union, out of that relationship, there was a multiplication, a fruitfulness that occurred that really was a powerful precedent as you read in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, immediately you just see that as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church and as she is immersed in the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, that quickly there is a spiritual conception that occurs inside of the womb of the church and immediately not only is there a radical transformation in revelation and maturity where she stands up as the bride of Christ, a full partner and companion in kingdom ministry, in, in proclamation and in demonstration, she stands up as a suitable helpmate. I love that. She's young, but she's now grown quickly. She's been transformed, and, and now this bride stands up, and she is fruitful, and she begins to multiply. And just unprecedented. Uh, fertility and fruitfulness as thousands of people come to know the Lord. And, and we like to use this phrase that Christianity truly was contagious. It was like they were adding to the church daily such as should be saved. 
And so what I did was I said that if Jesus is going to come back, and he's promised that I'm going to have a church that's forever young, she's going to be uh, forever youthful in her spirit, then we've got to go back to the book of Acts and see the nature and the character of the church. And so what we did was we focused in on Acts chapter 2, and we're going to have you go back there today, and uh, we're going to reread that text again in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. And some of you, if you're uh, using the Bible, and some of you obviously are using fake Bibles this morning, called electronic device, devices, called iPods and phones and iPads. So you can use a Bible or a fake Bible, but turn with me to there. And it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I'm going to reread that. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There are a number of characteristics of the vitality of the church that are mentioned there. But what I said was the first three or four, it all depends on how you break it down, are kind of the core essential elements and expressions of the life. The life of God being manifested through his church. And that life had a form and a shape in which, you know, that life and that life of God and that energy of God was channeled through this expression. And so they were focused and they were devoted and passionate about the apostles' teaching and the apostles' doctrine. And two things, and they're, they're one thing but two aspects, the fellowship and the breaking of bread, and the last one was prayer. And what I did what I, I shared in review is I said those became the foundational elements of the life of the church and the other things that are listed in all of those characteristics were the byproduct of that life. Life in the word, life in relationship with each other in unprecedented unity, fellowship and sharing with each other, life in God, Christ in the midst of his church and also them being God-centered in which there was a dependency and an unwavering faith that was directed to God. They were a people of prayer. They did not build a house of teaching. They did not build a house of preaching. They built a house of prayer. It was the restoration of David's tabernacle. So those four things were, were their constants. That was the foundational elements of the way they expressed life. God honored that by giving them miracles, signs and wonders, uh, the meeting of people's needs, the salvation of people being swept into the church. And so I like those results. And so I say, what we got to do is we've got to examine under the hood these four elements. The first one that we begin, and that's where I want to pick up, and I want to talk about this morning, again, the apostles' teaching. And the last time I shared, at least out of this passage, we just talked a little bit about the apostles' teaching and the need to recover the gospel 
because the gospel is facing extinction in the Western church through distortion and dilution. And that's kind of where we left off. And what I want to go today is I want to talk about, well, what are the parts of the gospel that are being diluted or even those that are being discarded to where our gospel no longer has the potency and the power to convert the hearts of men. Paul said this. He said, I am not embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're a witness and if you have to testify about the, the content and the character of something, you don't want to get on the witness stand and saying, well, I think this is what it is, and it was represented to me that way. A jury sees through someone that is not confident in their testimony. And if you're an attorney and you see somebody up there hedging about having a confidence of what they're saying, they will immediately go in there with their razor-sharp intellect and they will begin to pick apart your story. But I love the Apostle Paul, and he said, I'm not embarrassed in any way about my witness about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to back down one bit about the preaching and the teaching and the declaration and my defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ because I've seen it at work, not only in my life, but in the lives of those that I have preached the gospel to. And I have come to find it is the power of God unto salvation. I've seen it bring dead men back to life. I've seen people that are dead in trespasses and sin and bound in the kingdom of darkness and in the darkness of, the, of satanic power and the grip of Satan. And I've seen them be brought into marvelous light. I've seen the reality of the power of the word of God that has the ability to create a new creation. And so I'm not ashamed. And I stand here knowing that the gospel has, is the power of God unto salvation. And so I want to say, if that is the case, then and, and the gospel had that type of potency and truth density and power, I've got to go back and I've got to examine my gospel. And where we left off two months ago is I talked about that God is interested in authenticity. He's interested in the truthfulness of the truth that we represent about him. Can I throw out a thought to you this morning? I think sometimes, and, and what I want to do is I want to try to increase the devotion level in the people of God to the apostolic doctrine and to the gospel again. And that means both in its quality and in its quantity. In other words, that we're willing to go, you know, over a long period of time, we're willing to immerse ourselves. It doesn't matter how many times you've heard the gospel before. It doesn't mean if you have heard it and heard it again and you were raised on a church bench 
and you've been raised in Sunday school as a child and you think you've heard it all and you've seen it all, there was this thing about the church in which they took the word of God and I believe that there was a, a, a remembrance and a reminding and a recentering of themselves constantly on what is the most important thing. And what happens is when we don't make the main thing the main thing and all of a sudden the main thing gets pushed to the periphery, you begin to forget what God has done for you. You forget where you've come from. Do you hear what I'm saying? You don't remember your lostness. All of a sudden you become nearsighted and, and you begin to focus on the subjective of your circumstance and your problems and it's like, God, what have you done for me lately? And you begin to lose a depth of relationship with the Lord. But the, the, the early church, they just immersed themselves. And they were willing to go deep, but for the long haul, saying this is the main thing. And there could be other revelations that are out there that are good, that are important. But we're not going to let it supplant the main thing of the gospel that was delivered to us. Now, what I just said to you was something that was very important because I want you to hear. The gospel was delivered to us. Peter said, I've not followed a cunningly devised fable. What I'm writing to you is not some fantasy that we sit around in a back room with a candle and try to invent something that could make us popular because obviously we've suffered in our popularity by believing it. But God gave us a stewardship. The gospel is from God. It originated in heaven. Now I want you to put yourself in an eternal perspective and thinking that God said there is a life that is going to be lived on the earth. There's going to be this miracle of the incarnation and I'm going to send my son. And he is going to live a sinless life and it's going to be a mystery. It's going to be prophesied about but it's only going to be seen in part and heard in part but the parts that are seen are so excited that the prophets that see it will long to see that salvation revealed. Matter of fact, as... As this plan is being spoken about in heaven, the angels are wanting to inquire up because they know that it's really big and heaven is up to something. And the angels that are not in the know are, are hearing the buzz in heaven and they're wanting to find out of why God is interested in the sons of men. Even in their weak, sinful condition, in their lost condition. And so we need to understand God came in the flesh in the incarnation but then he brought about a salvation through a, a plan that was filled with mystery but he died and he was buried and the wrath of God was poured out upon him and then God raised him back to life. Again is that exclamation point that said you have done it. It is finished. So Paul said, this gospel that we preach is good news that has come down from heaven. And I think that many times in our, our lives, we don't look at this as a sacred trust. 
this knowledge that has now been revealed, this mystery that has now been openly displayed, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. It's now a sacred charge and a sacred trust that you have been given. Sometimes we are so casual and familiar with the message that we no longer hold it as something that is dear and precious to us. So we don't care if the numbers get fudged a little. <coughs> don't confuse me with the facts. As long as we're in the ballpark. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so we have a church that all of a sudden distorts the very ingredients that have the power to save. And when I say the ingredients, I'm talking about the potency of truth that can bring a bit dead man back to life. It can take a sinner and make him clean and cleanse him and create with him a clean heart. And God said, if I can have those that hold the sacred charge and the sacred truth that has been delivered unto them, and they will maintain the core of the truth and not, not push it to the periphery. I will confirm the preaching of my word with the miraculous. I will show the endorsement of heaven upon the authenticity of that witness. Now, if we have a lack of the level of the supernatural in the church, I say that it's not the inability of God to heal, to deliver, and to save I've got to go back and say in my sacred stewardship of being one who is a keeper of the gospel, one who is a steward of the gospel, I've got to go back and say, God, is the gospel that I'm preaching, is it authentic enough so that you can give witness to it? Where you can from heaven say this is the truth and nothing but the truth. So we've got to go back and we've got to start saying, where did we get lost? What did we push to the periphery? What did we push to the side? And what have we lost? I've had a little coughing issue, and if I'm not careful, I could go into a coughing conniption. So... I'm going to try to be very careful because I can feel the irritation. I did get some water already, so no one has to run to get the water. <clears throat> Let's look at what I consider the fabric and the DNA of the gospel. And you, you go, well, this is so basic and so fundamental that, you know. I tell you, I, I want to encourage us not just to be so familiar to think that you know what you think you know. And there's where we cry out for the grace of God to say, God, give me a gift of hunger where I can hear things as if I'm hearing them for the first time. But I'm like a child. Jesus said, no one enters into the kingdom can receive the content of the kingdom unless they first become like a little child. And I love the nature of a child because they're so hungry and inquisitive, or they should be. 
about things they're discovering. When they learn something new, it's just like, wow. And you're going, honey, there is so much more that's coming your way. It's going to blow your mind. But I love it. I loved it. Uh, Karis got on a, a little bicycle for the first time with training wheels. And, and I watched her in the discovery of learning how pedals can make motion and you can go forward and backwards and you can go in circles and she just thought this is amazing I could see it it was just it was life to her she was discovering a new reality well that's the way the unsearchable riches of Christ in the gospel should be to us I know on Easter when I preached I talked about Martin Luther and that phrase that he said he goes you know when I study the mystery of the gospel and I, I look at the death burial and the resurrection of Jesus and I, I stay close to the cross. And every day I, I just abide there. He said, it is as if Jesus died only yesterday. That's where we got to live. That the reality of his death and what he did. We want more healings in the church. Abide at the cross. Stare into the wounds. Brothers and sisters, because we... Then when we look at the cross and we stare in the wounds, then all of a sudden we understand the victory that has been won. And so it's not a striving unto victory, but it is a, a strength from victory. Then when we preach Jesus Christ as the same yesterday, today, and forever, <coughs> and we begin to declare him as the healer, we speak it as, we, as if we know it as an eyewitness. That you can be healed because there were stripes. It's not just words on a page, but no, he was wounded for transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. By those stripes, we have been healed. Okay, we got to move along. You guys are going to say... We'll get a review next week as well. Okay, if you have your Bibles, again, turn with me to Romans chapter 11, verse 22. And some of the things that I'm going to say are counterintuitive to some of the things that are out there today. And one of the ways in which gospel distortion occurs is we get into error by emphasis. We just get on a tangent and we overemphasize it to a point where it becomes the center, it becomes the major, and then the majors get pushed to the periphery. And one of the major fabrics of the gospel that must be restored in our preaching is we've got to get right the character of God. Because the gospel comes forth from a person who has a certain character and nature. I don't know about you, but I know we're not to be offended and, and we don't have rights to be offended. But if there is a thing that sometimes stretches me not to be offended is when somebody who doesn't know me but thinks they know me 
judges me and they don't know who I really am. Doesn't that bother you? Now again, Lynn, get over it. You don't have the right to be offended. You've got to forgive those people. But misrepresentation of one's character, because what it does is it strikes at the very core of you because all of us want to be known for who we really are. We want to be understood. We don't want to be misjudged. We don't want to be represented. And so what we do is we make a lot of statements about God and in the gospel and the preaching of the gospel and the content of the gospel that is out there in the 21st century, there's a lot of things about God. And at the very foundation of that is a reflection of his nature and his character. And can I say this? God has almost been made into a caricature. And we are falling into what I call a Marcion. Marcion was a man who was judged as a heretic in the first century of the church because he came up with the idea that he loved the New Testament but did not like the Old Testament. And what he did was he said that, and, and eventually began to emphasize this so much that he carried the, his thought to an extreme. Again, that's where error, we end up in error by emphasis. And he then began to teach. He said that the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the New Testament. Two different gods. One was an evil God and one was a good God. And we're glad that the good God won out. And obviously... He was a heretic. And guess what? They kicked him out of the church because the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Now, I'm going to try to share some things that may be hard to explain, but I'm going to try to simplify it in such a way that we understand that God can be great. He can be sovereign. Hello? He can be righteous he can be holy, but he also can be profoundly loving and good. But his greatness does not contradict his goodness, and his goodness does not contradict his greatness. And his goodness does not, you know, somehow push away that in his sovereignty and his righteousness and the demands of his holiness and his sense of justice. You will never understand his goodness and his love and his mercy until you see what he overcame for you when you understand his holiness, his sovereignty, and his righteousness. There is a great battle that, that went on about a month ago. And one of the major mainline denominational churches, because of liberalism, in theological thought, where people don't like the thought of God being righteous, holy, sovereign king, and can we also say this, a judge. Get over it. He has the right to judge you. He is going to judge you. Why? Because he is the source of you. He created you. 
And he made you with an intention in mind. He had no, in his initial thought of the creation of mankind, he did not create a race to say, I'm going to create a race of rebels. I'm going to create a corrupt race that will destroy my work and destroy my handiwork and live their lives in opposition to my purpose. No, he created you to be to the praise of his glory. He created you for intimacy and fellowship. He want and had a design and a desire to have you become a part of his family and call you his sons and his daughters. But some of us, when we come down to the justice of God and the judgment of God and the holiness of God, when we move over so far in this column that we, we just say, you know, God can only be good because if he's loving, he can only be good. And it's interesting how we struggle in our understanding of the character of God, but yet in our own lives, we give ourselves the past that we can be both just, righteous, judgmental, and we can also be loving and good. If there were kids in your neighborhood that made up a gang, and that every day they came and rocked your house and busted out your windows, I would say that would be unjust. They shouldn't act in that way. What if they destroyed other parts of your property? They continued to just, you know, attack, you know, the beauty of your home and your tranquility and your peace would you feel like you have a right to be angry and would you also say specifically if you created that neighborhood and you own that neighborhood you would have a right to hold them accountable for their actions and that would you want them brought to justice but you also knew that your kids were a part of that gang. And you have an intense love for your kids that have been caught up in the midst of that gang. And that gang has influenced your kids to commit crimes against you, their father. You have a conundrum because you've got to somehow, in your love, because you want to show your children mercy and tenderness and compassion, and you want to redeem them from this situation. You cannot violate the sense of the justice that needs to be done because not only are they committing the things against you, now the gang is beginning to commit its crimes against others. And there is a multiplication of the corruption of the behavior. Now the gang is growing because of the corruption that is in the nature of the gang, and more and more people are being defiled. And so something has to be done to correct the situation. And the only corrective situation and, and, and measure is going to have to be discipline and a justice that is administered to correct the core of the problem. But yet you're wanting to show mercy. 
And the only way that the conundrum can be solved is that the justice must be satisfied. And it's satisfied through sacrifice. Now, I was getting ready to read you something. A few months ago, one of the major denominations that has shifted away from the gospel. And it's amazing that how religion begins to evolve over time. But they had a hymn committee of what would be in their hymns to sing that would reflect the truth that they believed. And there is a hymn called In Christ Alone. How many have enjoyed that hymn? There are certain psalmists that are now trying to rewrite hymns that teach, songs that teach. Not just God-directed choruses, but there are hymn writers now that are saying in a contemporary way we are wanting to go back to writing hymns that can teach the Word of God. If you ever heard the song on the radio, In Christ Alone, it's powerful words. Christ alone I place my trust. And one of the phrases on that is it said that in the original lyrics it says, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And I've, I've sung it in church, and I've sung it on the radio in the car, and I just love that phrase. But this hymn committee struggled with that on the cross that Jesus died. They didn't have a problem with that. But wait a minute, we've got a problem about the wrath of God. Because the God that we want to remake in our mem, uh, image doesn't get angry. He doesn't have a wrath problem. And so they just said, we would like you. And they contacted the guy in Nashville that wrote the words the, in Christ alone. And they said, we would like you to substitute the words. But because you have a copyright on the song, you're going to have to agree to the change. And then we'll put it in our hymnal. Would you substitute the words, instead of on the cross as Jesus died, we want you to put the love of God as magnified. Now, is that true? Yes. But again, the love of God being magnified does not supplant the truth that the wrath of God was satisfied. And this is where the church is. The church has taken the character of God, and like Marcion, we've only taken truths of a good God, a kind God, a merciful God, a loving God, and he's become a caricature of a celestial Santa Claus and a sky fairy. And he's a God that can never engage the world in any type of thing where he corrects what's wrong. He can only be, like so many parents today, Instead of being a father or a mother, they're just friends with their kids. They're just indulgent. We want an indulgent God. So I can live a reckless life. And many of us, we think the grace of God, there has been a redefinition of the grace of God. And I think Pastor Tom, or if he doesn't like to be called Pastor Tom, Tom shared a message about the distortions of the grace message. The message of grace today has been converted into a thing of not the power of the gospel of grace that brings change and transformation. I do not have to die in my sins, but I don't even have to now live in my sin because it's forgiveness and it's freedom from 
and then a fullness in God. The message of grace is not a thing that says, now I get to live recklessly and it empowers me just to live recklessly because Jesus paid the debt and I'm free to now live the way I want to. No, grace says that the wrath of God was satisfied, what you deserved, what you should have received, the things for your sin and for Adam's sin and for the human race all the things, the sins and the transgressions and the iniquities he bore on himself. And listen, the reason why it was so painful for Jesus on the cross is because in that moment, all of that anger, all of the intensity of that sense of my law and my justice and my righteousness, and my holiness, my character has been violated to such a degree there must be a sentence that is carried out. The cup in which Jesus asked to pass was the cup of the wrath of Almighty God. I want you to think about that. There was not where God said, okay, I'm just going to have you sip a little of this cup. Just get a taste of what my wrath and my punishment about. No, Jesus had to drink the cup of the wrath of God till he also drank the bitter cup, even the dregs at the bottom. Now, when I say we've got to keep the gospel the center... If I don't understand that, that he not just died for me, but he suffered as me. And I just don't daily remind myself of that. That it was for my sins that the wrath of God was fully poured out in its fury. Then all of a sudden, I begin to think, I'm okay. You're okay. Do what you want to. I'll do what I want to. And all of a sudden, when I stay close to that cross and I look upon him and I see his disfigured, marred body in person, as he who knew no sin became sin for us, I begin to understand the sense of the greatness and the justice and the righteousness and the holiness of God. That the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And so I say, God, please let me know that you are a good God. But Paul said this, and I ask you to turn there in Romans chapter 11. And we're going to wrap it up because you're going to have a fellowship dinner. In Romans chapter 11, Paul said this, verse 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Can I, can I just say this? You know, I'm just wondering. Uh, do we have ears to hear the truth of God's word anymore? Or are we like people that just say, just pick out the parts that I like. 
Hello. The apostolic gospel, Paul said, now wait a minute, as you begin to contemplate God's character, I found out that it's so important for me to immerse myself in the understanding of the good nature of God. He's long-suffering, he's patient, he's good, he's kind, he's tender. But he said, I also have learned to balance that understanding with that God is also stern. King James says the goodness and the severity of God. Severity. You mean that he's a strong disciplinarian? Absolutely. And not only is he harsh on sinners to try to keep them from going to hell. You know, he's, he's not just out there because they're lost. And he goes, I want to make their way miserable because I don't like them. Because they rejected my son. No, even his severity, there is an intention of purpose that says, I'm going to put up so many roadblocks in your way because I don't want you to be lost. And so I'm going to introduce sternness and severity. You did that as a parent as well. And your severity and your sternness was misjudged. And you were called, you're just mean. You're just mean. You want to make my life miserable, mom and dad. No, the sternness was as a result of saying, I do not want to lose you. I wish that none would perish. Then we come into Christ, but we feel the gospel of grace just empowers us to live recklessly. And the Lord says, oh no, I've saved you. But I'm going to conform you into the image of my son because I want you to be full. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to bear fruit as you abide in me. And so I'm willing to prune you. I'm willing to discipline you. I'm willing to shape you. And sometimes you'll think that God, you have you have not given me what I wanted in my relationship with you. You've tested me in denial of what I think I deserve. I deserve that. And I think that your promises, I demand that your promises give me this kind of life. And now I recognize in my own life, and you, hindsight is twenty twenty. you look back and you go, Thank you, God. If you would have given me that, it would have destroyed me. I wasn't ready for that. I thought that's what I wanted, only to discover as you matured me that that was such an immature desire. Thank you for denying me this so that you could give me something so much better. And so now I've learned to say, Father, I like this. If it's your will... But nevertheless, I never want anything less than the perfection of your will. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so we've got to get back, and I'll wrap it up. Otherwise, they'll deal with offense in their heart about the long-winded preacher in the back. Because those ladies, I'm sure, have everything ready to go. We've got to return back to recapturing 
the true character of God. People say you're intolerant. You start sharing that, you're going to be labeled as intolerant. You're going to be unkind, you know. And so we tell people, we say, it's so much easier to attract, uh, you know, flies with honey and not vinegar. I tell you what, if you're dying of cancer, you're dying of cancer, you do not want a doctor and a nurse to come in and all of a sudden just say, we have wonderful mills here at this hospital. And you have two weeks to live, but you're going to eat some of the best steak and chicken and mashed potatoes that you've ever had. Matter of fact, even though you have cancer, you're going to gain weight over the next two weeks before you die. No, I want a doctor to come in and tell me, I love you. But because I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth. You've got cancer. And I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm one of the best of the best. I know how to kill cancer. But I'm going to have to cut on you. And I'm going to have to give you some radical doses of radiation or chemotherapy. And you know what? While we're getting at your cancer, it's going to be a potent dose of some stuff that can kill a lot of things. And you may feel that you're going to die, but we're going to get your cancer taken care of. We're going to cure you by giving you what you need, and that is a radical treatment. And you're probably going to end up losing weight, and you're going to probably think you're going to die. But guess what? I can promise you if we aggressively treat this, I don't have to tell your family you're going to die. I can tell them that guess what? you got a new lease on life. My final thoughts, if I can have a final thought. The church right now has fallen into a trap that we think that if we can just be gentle and kind enough with people long enough, that somehow that they can come to the Lord. And at the discipleship class two weeks ago, I just said, I believe we've got to be gentle. We shouldn't be contentious. We shouldn't be argumentative. We shouldn't be browbeating. We shouldn't try to be ugly when we say the gospel. We should be as gentle and kind as possible. But I tell you what, the Bible does not say be gentle and kind enough, long enough to people. It says preach the word and be instant in season and out of season. It says, it tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so I do believe that they need to know that we care. But if I really care about you, I'm going to tell you the truth. And what we need to start telling people again is that God loved you and God loves you. And because he loved you, he poured out his wrath upon the Son of God to pay for your sin. But if you do not lay claim to that provision of mercy and grace, you are going to die in your sins. And that is the true character of God. The character of God that did everything possible. And as I said a number of weeks ago, it was the only option. When it says the righteous are scarcely saved, it means that the only way that salvation could have been accomplished was through Jesus dying in our place. So if we reject it, it's not just one of several ways. 
It is the way, the truth that will bring us to life. So do we have some people who will stand up and say, sacred trust, devotion means a focus and immersion back into the centrality of the truths that we've kind of, well, that cross stuff, the blood stuff. Uh, let's talk about my identity some more. Let's talk about my thing. And I go, no, we need to go back to Jesus. If we are preaching messages where Jesus is not mentioned, if we are teaching and preaching messages where we're not talking about what he accomplished, then I want you to know we're no longer preaching the gospel. Okay. Jesus, we ask that you would stir up our heart with a hunger and, and just a, a, a spirit that becomes zealous for the gospel again. And Lord, I just say, I ask you to forgive me for any distortion or misrepresentation of your character. That because of the fear of man, I wanted to make you look what I thought would be better in their mind. But all I did was I tied your hands from being able to save them. Jesus, you are the great physician. You're the savior. You're the healer. You're the deliverer of mankind. I am sorry that in some ways I've been ashamed to tell people again what you have done. And so, Lord, I just pray that there would be a boldness. Even as your early church prayed, oh, God, grant unto us even greater boldness. That the name of Jesus and his true character and nature, knowing that you are good, but you are great, knowing that you're good, but yet there is a severity and a righteousness to your character. And Father, I pray that as we meditate on this truth this morning, that as we go this week into your word, that Father, I pray that we would take off the, the lens of the glasses of our prejudice and, and our own imaginations where we've created you in to our image and our likeness and, and a God that gives us a wink and a nod just to live the way we want to. God, you are the sovereign Lord and you demand, you demand and decree that we submit to you. Jesus, we want to submit and yield our life to you. Jesus, you are Lord. You're Lord. You're Lord and sovereign over all. You will judge the living and the dead. And all of us will stand before you on that day. God, I pray that you once again, even as Isaiah prophesied about the sevenfold spirit of the Lord, and one of those aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit is he makes us quick and understanding of the fear of the Lord. I pray that in this house there would be the Holy Spirit's ability to teach us, to make us quick in our understanding of the fear of the Lord. Let your awe, let your reverence, let your lordship and your sovereignty come to this house in a renewed way.
And I ask you for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Sorry I kept you over. Bless you. Amen. If you're a guest with us, feel free to stick around and eat some food with us. Um, you know, what Lynn said is is really important, and I encourage you to go to our podcast on our website and re-listen to this. But this week, your assignment, I really feel, is that you need to. we need to be asking God this week as we engage in our quiet times, as we pray, God, give me a hunger for the whole gospel. Just begin to ask the Lord this week, Give me hunger for the whole gospel. And if we pray that with our heart, something will begin to work inside of us. And a change will happen. We will begin to read and, and understand. Because I think sometimes we, we don't read the hard parts. And we don't, we don't focus on them because they don't make sense. And we can't reconcile them because of maybe our ignorance or our misunderstanding. But as we ask God for hunger... For the whole gospel, he will bring revelation for the whole gospel. Amen? Will you pray that this week? Will you seek it this week? All right, well, let's pray for the food, and then we'll go. God, we thank you for the today. We thank you for the provision. Bless our fellowship, Lord. Bless everyone who's contributed, and God, bless. Bless, bless. We love you, God. We want to be hungry, God, for all of the gospel. Every single part. Give us light to see and to perceive and to understand. Thank you for the word today, God. We bless you. We love you in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen.